Welcome to the Austin New Church Podcast. My name is Melinda Tab, and I'm one of the youth pastors here. We are a progressive faith community dedicated to the pursuit of inclusion and social justice. Whether you're a beloved out-of-towner or are just catching up, please enjoy this week's message. My name is Jason, in case you didn't know that, Trey. I'm the lead pastor here, and if we haven't met, let's fix that. One-on-one, please, because I'm not a big social guy. I can handle one-on-one. That's about what I can do. I'm going to try to listen to myself today as I speak. I feel like today is important for me to hear, but as well as you, and it's, there's a measure of trepidation around the subject matter today. There's a few subject matters that I will avoid, like COVID, uh, and this today might be one of those. We're going we're gonna to sort of ease our way into it. I ran Town Lake a bunch this week, but twice with Chris and Nicole Marlowe, your house guests. You would know them as the founders of Help One Now. They're good friends of mine. But Chris is a master fundraiser, and he was listening to what we were talking about last week, and he offered me this little bit of wisdom when thinking about our financial trajectory as a church. He said this, and I don't know whether I should believe him or not. Lamar, he's your boss, so maybe you can tell me if I could take this to the bank, no pun intended. He said, you're actually doing people a great service of kindness when you invite them to get involved in something bigger than themselves. Okay, I'm micro-reading the shaking of heads in here. Is Chris crazy? Is Chris Kringle crazy? We know Nicole's not crazy. We wonder about Chris sometimes. And I've been thinking about that all week as we jogged and sweat and ran and did our deals. You guys know my trauma around money, and you know my trauma around speaking about these issues. You also know that we are having to get honest. And so we're looking at some numbers that are concerning, and um, we just need to face that. So my encouragement to you would be please get involved financially around here if this work matters to you. If having a kind of church like this matters to you, then get involved with it. We have to fund the things we love, and we have to fund the things that we believe in. We have to fund what sets us free. If we don't, it will expire. That's as simple as that. It's about as quick as I can say it. So I think we hit a nerve last week uh, during the open mic portion of the service. It was the best part of the service. If you want to go back and rewatch it, just skip through all the way to the, the part where the mic gets passed around. It was the good part. I think we hit a bit of a nerve. If you didn't hear it, go back. Everything we say lives online forever. You guys know that, right? Like everything is always out there on Facebook or on YouTube. Um, But apparently, I'm not the only person in the room who suffered under an assumption that carrying the gospel to the world was going to be our responsibility and that God would be really upset if we didn't do it right. Don, you were in Mexico, so you probably didn't hear this. Charlotte heard it, and so did Scout, because I practiced my sermon on your dogs. No, I actually didn't do that, but (laughs) apparently, I'm not the only one who still feels that that was that never quite made sense because we've had quite a conversation around that. So here's the question, in case you're new to our conversation over the summer, here's the question we're asking ourselves. Where to now? Where to next? Where are we going? What's next for us? COVID took a big dent out of the model of the local church. It's no longer assumed to be the center of your spirituality. And we know this, I know this. I want to join you on your spiritual development and this can be a resource, but it's not what it was in the 1950s. And I'm not gonna make that my assumption about how the world works, right? So. That's the question we're asking ourselves, and I wonder if you carrying that question a little bit, I wonder how that's been for you. It's exciting for me because it's the question we live with every day, and it's actually kind of fun for you to sort of ask yourself that question on occasion too. Where do we want to go next? Because you know it won't just be what I see, and it won't just be what Trey sees, it won't just be what the board sees. We're going to need to each have a stake in this if we're going to carry this forward. 
So Acts has been our guide, the book of Acts, as you know. And we're living in the memories of Luke now. Luke took the time to write the sequel to his gospel, known to us as the book of Acts. It's the story of a community of people asking themselves, actually, ironically, not surprisingly, the very question we're asking ourselves now, which is, where do we want to go next? That's the story of the New Testament. It's the story of all of the, the, the generation around which we read so deeply into those texts because we've preserved them. But that's the question that they're asking themselves. You know, the New Testament isn't the story about God when he first discovered courage and a reason to forgive humanity. That's not what we have in the scriptures. The letters and the memoirs that make up our New Testament make up the story of a particular people catching up to what God had already been doing through people since time immemorial. And I don't know why it feels important to remind you of that. But we often look back as if ours is the only perspective on history, and it's not. And that should feel like good news. I said this last week. People were healed at the Pool of Bethesda long before Jesus walked into that scene. And people received charity and support at the temple gate called Beautiful long before Peter and John looked up, from the, looked up with that and saw eye to eye the nameless man who was struggling on that day on their way to prayer. Things happened long before our story picks up. You friends, love wasn't invented by Jesus and his followers. Jesus embodied love in a fresh new way, but love had always been what held all things together. That had always been the case. So let me just string it all together and tell you this, my friend, in case it helps you. As we move forward into what's next for us as a church, I'm asking us to be done once and for all with the kind of myopic thinking that we know as Christian exclusivism. It's insulting. It's no longer okay. Not even half an amen in here. Can I buy an A? Can I buy an A and we'll just add the men later? We don't need them involved. They've always been at the center. Let's just buy an A for amen. How's that? All right, okay. <laughs> Once and for all, we have to gather around the grave of the assumption that says the entire world must see everything the way we do or else none of it is righteous or godly or acceptable or affirmable. We've got to gather around that once and for all. I can feel an inside amen happening in your brain. We've got to be done, friends, with post-colonial frameworks. We have to have post-colonial frameworks. We have to be done with conquest and domination and cultural squishing of other storylines. We have to be done. We have to do our utmost for his highest, that's my little trigger for you, to model the posture of Jesus. Now follow me. Notice I said the posture of Jesus. I didn't say the posture of the apostles. Jesus is our model, let's stay clear on that. The way he existed in the world is the example that we're trying to emulate. And why does that distinction matter between Jesus and the apostles? I'm tempted to do an open mic here right now, but we don't have the time at the moment. Well, it matters because Jesus himself was the great includer. Jesus spoke of abundance and presence and kindness and mercy. Jesus opens up his initial sermons with ideas like this. Hey, you're blessed by God when you do this, or the way the world works can be compared to this earthy object or this principle in nature. On the contrary, friends, if you pay close enough attention to the evolution of the preaching and the teaching of the apostles, you'll notice, sadly, a quick pivot to guilt and sin and blame and the kind of austere summary that seems intent to lay blame at the feet of the very listener of those sermons for the ultimate public death of their friend Jesus. Now, if that's a lot to chew on, we're gonna, un we're gonna, we're gonna unwind that today together. Now, we have to be kind when we read back into history. These were the early sermons preached by these guys. Their theology was still evolving. It still is evolving today. So is ours, and there's no shame in that. Man, I would hate it if you could find the old files of my preaching when I was in my young 20s. Man, that stuff was so wet and so green. You, I couldn't 
I couldn't stick to any of that anymore. So we have to be careful when we read into the early sermons of Peter specifically. We have to be gracious, but we have to, we have to also be honest. And when I read today's text, my heart sank a little bit, to be frank. I whispered somewhere in my subconscious, come on, Peter, lighten up a little bit, pick up the big picture again. Let's not over dig down on this point here. It's as if Jesus taught about all the things that people might someday be, all the things that the world actually was and actually could be, and the disciples often, if we read them closely, taught us about all the things people did wrong and all the things the world was not. It's a subtle shift, friend, but it's significant to notice. Friends, we are not the, one, we are not the first to invent this obsession over sin in Western American evangelicalism. I know that's our story, but people were obsessed with guilt and shame and sin long before that. That obsession goes all the way back to the apostles, and we can see it in their sermons. Actually, it goes back before that. Catherine reminded me this week in the manuscript that long before the apostles' teachings, you could find it in the Torah, and before the Torah was organized, it already existed in tribal forms of, of blood sacrifice. Guilt and sin and the language of transgression is as ancient as we are. And here's what I'm beginning to notice as a student of the Bible. Such ideas have actually, friend, no real or lasting roots in the teachings of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that these ideas don't exist in Christianity because they do. We can all find them. They just don't have their roots in Jesus. They do, however, go back as far as the early apostolic teachings from the book of Acts. If you don't believe me, just watch Peter's sermons and how they evolve. Let me summarize. His first sermon explains that ecstatic outpouring in the upper room when the ghost of God flowed across those people and they learned to speak in the languages of all people in the city at the time. And Peter draws analogies from an ancient oracle by a prophet named Joel, and he involves fire and smoke and the terrible reckoning that would take place if they didn't put their faith in Jesus. That was sermon number one. Sermon number two, Peter preaches his second sermon in response to the healing of the man that we looked at last week with an unspecified physical limitation. Here he lays the blame at the feet of the audience for killing the Christ, capital C. Now he's taken his friend Jesus, he's elevated him now to the title of the Messiah, the long-awaited one. He summarizes this basically by saying, we finally had our Messiah and you guys circled up and you murdered him. You see the message he's shaping here? And by sermon three in the book of Acts, Peter's speaking to the religious authorities who had him arrested for doing those acts in public. By this point, Peter refers to Jesus not only as the Christ, but now he uses that builders, that engineer, that architect's imagery. He calls him the chief cornerstone, which is a way of saying he's the only straight line. Everything else must be put aside if it doesn't fit with the line that this chief cornerstone is setting. Cast all other stones aside. Evaluate everything now based on my friend Jesus. Now Peter escalates to make the claim that there simply is no access anymore to the good life outside of his friend Jesus, and suddenly every other story falls away. Jesus is now, according to Peter, the only legit way to flee divine wrath and punishment, and there it is again, that ancient obsession with God's anger. Well, boy, Peter, that sure escalated quick in three sermons inside two chapters. In contrast, friends... Let's think about Jesus' opening words that day in the temple when he was 30. Remember that day when he stood up and he asked to see the scrolls and then he turned to the place in the book of Isaiah that read, the ghost of God is upon me, the spirit of the divine is upon me, and today this ancient oracle is fulfilled in your midst. And what, pray tell, friend, was that ancient oracle? Well, my words, to summarize it, would be, 
Jesus stands up and says, the animated presence of the divine has come upon me for a purpose, which is to, to deliver good news to those lacking in resources. The great spirit has set me free, has sent me to liberate those who have been held against their will, to restore sight to those who have struggled to see, to set free all who can sing that old eagles song. You remember it, freedom, oh freedom. Well, that's just some people talking. I didn't intend to bury an eagles reference, even though the band essentially played an eagles song today. It's a bit of a faux pas there, but that's my summary of Jesus' first public sermon at the temple that day as preserved in the, in the fourth chapter of Luke. It was revolutionary, absolutely no doubt, and it didn't even stop there. It even got better for the common man. You see, Jesus will go on to preach his most famous discourse named by the very locale he chose in which to preach it. You would know it as the Sermon on the Mount. Think about how he could have started his discourse, turn or burn, familiar messages from the 1980s for us, or repent and be baptized, you wicked generation, flee the wrath of God to come, but that's not what Jesus says. Those are not the words he chose. No, friends, he begins by reciting a long list of blessings. Let this sink into your spirit today. Blessed are the poor and the mourners and the meek and the hungry and the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers and the persecuted. He begins his public ministry by naming the proof that God has not forgotten those who seemed forgotten by God. Blessed are the ones you thought were cursed is his message in summary. That's his message on the mountain that day. Now, Jesus will go on to speak harshly about sin, don't get me wrong, but the sin he will address will be mostly laid at the feet of the authorities that were intent on excluding the imperfect and others based on their private definition of sin, friends. I think you get my point today. Jesus lays, blames at, lays blame at the feet of the system, not at the victim. And that makes an enormous difference that impacts the posture and the message deeply. Now, we promised ourselves that we would be gracious with Peter, and we will. He will go on to age in kindness and tenderness. These stories are the early chapters of his public ministry. He was not yet headed in the perfect direction. He was working it out, but he will eventually sit down to write some epistles in his older age. But if I'm honest, friends, I do sometimes wonder if Peter and the original disciples ever fully got past that argument that they posed to Jesus that day. Who sinned, this man with, with the impaired sight or his parents? You remember that question? Anyway, the people in charge at the day of the day, they wanted answers. They want to know who approved, who gave out this little proper permit to operate this little lemonade stand of body repairs that Peter and John had going on in the city that week. Peter could have, could have simply responded to them by saying, hey, listen, we don't want any trouble. We don't want any trouble with your lackeys. We're just doing what Jesus showed us to do, but he didn't. Peter loves to escalate. He gets into it. He takes the bait. He dials up the heat way, 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 way up. And he starts laying blame at the, at, at the feet of the people asking the questions. And he begins to paint the world in black and white. And worst of all, he starts focusing more on sin and blame than on freedom and alleviating suffering. And this time he's not just blaming the elite religious establishment. If you look deeply in his third sermon, if you notice, now he's blaming the masses from the mistreatment of Jesus. And my goodness, we are now five pages in and I haven't even read the text. I once was given terrible advice on preaching by a dear friend. He said, read the text first, people will believe you. Might be why I never do. <laughs> Acts 3, let me read for us today. Trying to prepare you for the story we're about to read. Verse 11, it reads this way. While he, and of course here we're talking about the man who had just been healed. While he clung to Peter and to John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's portico, utterly astonished. 
When Peter saw it, he addressed the people, fellow Israelites. Now, remember, he's talking to the crowds now. Fellow Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we had made him walk? Verse 13, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. Watch how this shifts. But you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. We would know him as Barabbas. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by faith in his name, his name itself has made this man strong, the one that they had just healed, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given him his perfect health in the presence of all of you. Can you see how already Peter begins to repackage the message of Jesus? Now pause. I'm asking you to see something graduate school level, friends. We're now in seminary, sorry. You may have never read the text with this kind of eyes for nuance. But I wonder, can you see now how the message is beginning to shift? Does this feel like a come all who are burdened and I will give you rest kind of message? Is this more of a how dare you ask questions of us kind of thing? Y'all murdered him, don't blame us, y'all killed God. That's Peter's sermon. Friends, the apostles were great. They were good people, good dudes, no doubt. If I'm going to have a shiner, it's going to be with one of them. The stories they could tell, can you imagine? They got so much right. They preserved so much. But they have a messaging problem already. Already a shift has occurred. Freedom and abundance and blessing for all has become blame and historically manipulated theology and old oracles applied in ways that imply blame and early signs of Christian exclusivism. And if you need a definition on that, that's just that eternal conversation in our heads that makes us wonder who's in and who's out and makes us somehow feel the permission to decide that. Jesus has an answer for that question. It's all, capital A-L-L. That's his answer. All are in, but that's inconvenient. You see, that's post-tribal. That's decentering on our story. That's post-colonial. We're not sure what we think about that. These guys were still finding their way, friends. Now, pause. The apostles no doubt do good work. I'm not undermining that. They take the ministry of Jesus around the world eventually. But they also almost immediately mess with the algorithm. And we have to notice. They allow the message to become mostly about sin, friends, virtually right away. In the preaching of Peter, the leader of the 12, individuals are now to blame for the death of Jesus. Where Jesus whispers, Father, forgive them from the cross. They have no idea what they're doing. Peter's message is, y'all killed him, y'all blew it. Even Pilate to the Jews, the grossest representation of earthly systems of power run amok, even Pontius Pilate in the preachings of Peter, that Roman puppet, even he got it right when the people got it wrong. Peter seems to say, y'all picked a murderer to be released instead. Jesus suddenly became less of that physical embodiment of the love and mercy of the divine in the preaching of Peter and more the savior from the mess that y'all made. And I'm just asking you, can you see it or is it just me? Jesus describes an abundant life here and now. Salvation is healing and hope and love and access for all, but Peter and Paul who follows him will begin to distill this all down into a formula for escaping the coming wrath of an angry God, and that's what we must move past, friends. I'm thinking now about our future. 
Jesus spoke of a realm of influence way more than he did about the afterlife or heaven or hell. I know the word kingdom that gets translated into Greek 40 years after Jesus floated away from his followers. I know the idea associated with that, and I know what Christians have done with that. I get it. I'm not done when it comes to history. And I have to say that's very unlikely to have been the word or the word picture that Jesus was aiming at when he used that word that comes to us as kingdom. I've explained this before, but I'll just, just to brush up a little for us. You see, Jesus didn't speak Greek. Jesus spoke Aramaic, which means everything we have in our text that is attributed to the mouth of Jesus is already moving across two major linguistic ecosystems. While the sacred Jewish texts were always in Hebrew and they remain in Hebrew to this day, the common language of Jesus' day was Aramaic, and that's a lost language due to the cultural crush of the Greek and Roman domination of that region. In Aramaic, the word Jesus most likely used was Malkut, which referred not to a kingdom, but it referred to the actions, the influence of a leader, not the physical boundaries or the trappings of power. Power, of course, if you read Jesus with an open heart, power is a concept that he will go on to totally redefine. So it's very, very unlikely that he would have referred to anything like an earthly kingdom where power and violence and military might were the center That wouldn't have been the center of his teachings, not the teachings of Jesus. All this means the growing consensus among scholars these days is that Jesus spoke of something more like a circle of mutual empowerment, I've said it before, or a field of influence when he talked about the kingdom. You might think that that's insignificant, friend, but I think word pictures matter. Jesus refused the title king on more than one occasion. We can't misremember that fact. So then who transmuted these ideas of Jesus to the Greco-Roman world? Well, the disciples did, of course. The apostles did, which is why it's important for us to pay attention to the evolution of their ideas. You see, by the time they wrote, they had a vested interest in authority and influence and capturing the imagination of their audience by assigning blame for what had happened to Jesus. But I ask you, friend, did Jesus die because of somebody's sin, or was that always the length to which God's love was going to go? I think that matters, and I think we forget that. You see, there are things adjacent to the gospel, friends, that aren't the gospel themselves. We must learn to tell the difference. Well, why does any of this matter, preacher, in 2023 in Austin, Texas, where it's gonna be 800 degrees again today? I finally had to pull out the straw because the beaver felt is pretty hot this time of year. What can I say? Why does this matter, friends? Well because we are defining and refining our message as we reset and reposition ourselves in a fast-changing culture to embody the gospel that sets all things free. Our message has to be dialed in now. There is no longer any room in our culture for judgment and blame and shame. Either we find the good news and we project that and embody that to Austin, or we will go the way of institutional faith, friend. Our impact will die a slow and painful death. Last week we talked about how any root system is adequate to receive the good news of the gospel. We don't have to squash people and cultures as we embody the life of Jesus. If that is in your past, I'm so sorry it's in mine too, and we must do better. And the primary way that we squash people is by focusing the message of the gospel on sin instead of freedom. And there you have it. I just said it. I may have been waiting 40 years to say that in church, friends. Now, my big brother Stan can say it's about shame, not about sin, and it sounds right to me, but I have some trepidation when I touch this subject because I am aware that about 480,000 volts of electricity run through this in your history and in mine. We think of the world in these two blocked different frames, sin and righteousness, and it's time to outlive that. 
That's how we squash people. We roll in and we tell them what's sinful and what isn't, what's permitted and what isn't, what we think should be allowed and what shouldn't be. Friends, that empties our words of the actual good news, which is the gospel. And it stakes everything on the hope that people will somehow see how dirty and how guilty they are. And those are direct theological words lifted from the writings of Jonathan Edwards, if you must know. And we hope that that logic makes sense to them and that they see somehow that a man in ancient time lived a human life good enough to change the mood of an angry deity and thereby remind that angry deity deity of how to love and how to forgive. But friends, we've moved on to a much more holistic view of all things. The Paleolithic era gave us the imagery of mad gods and earthly calamities that we deserved for forgetting to feed and appease those ticked off superpowers. It's not hard to see this ideological wallpaper behind the words of Peter and Paul, but now we see the cosmos as an unfolding material world held together by love and compassion. And friends, those are no longer just faith words. Read deeply into new science and you will see they're looking for ways to describe dark matter and dark energy and the best words they can come up with are compassion and love. And we should not be surprised. It's what makes it all cohere. It's what makes it all hold together. Now, Peter does the best he could do from what he could see, and it was definitely good enough for that time because it brings us the witness that we need, but we have to find it within the story, right? Good enough for the time and space he inhabited. I'm not making light of the weight that was on him as he learned to speak into silence the message of his friend and his mentor, our beloved Jesus. But what interests me most in these stories is the people. Watch the crowds in the book of Acts. You see, they knew, they followed, see? Even though the message was still evolving, it was different. Somehow their pain now mattered. Somehow a blind man now centered on the story. Somehow people struggling with physical impairments were now the middle of the gospel. The religious authorities were upset because of all this Jesus stuff shifted their power center. You see, they sat at the top of their particular religious system If Galilean nobodies, uneducated nobodies, were allowed to perform brain-bending miracles in the streets, the crowds would then notice, and it would take some of the shine off of their religious franchise, and so they respond aggressively. That could not be tolerated. It had to be stopped. My summary of the religious elite's bellyache or their complaint would be this, who told y'all you could make us look like chumps? Stop. But watch the people, friends. Forget the power establishment. Always watch the people. And I just draw your attention to this verse in Acts 4, chapter, chapter 4, 21. After threatening them again, now this is the religious authorities telling them to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus. After threatening them again, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them praised God for what had happened. The people praised God because finally someone addressed the human physical need instead of just ideas about who was right, who was wrong, what was sin, what was guilt, what was transgression, and worst of all, who was to blame. Friends, Peter was evolving. By the time he sits down as an old man to write the epistles that we know as First and Second Peter and the like, he would have softened, but the people already understood from the beginning of his ministry, at least in part, that broken bodies could not be fully rationalized or explained away in frameworks of sin and guilt. Friends, suffering is suffering, and it moves the heart of God. Love folded it all back in. That was the gospel buried in the actions of the apostles, even if the message was still catching up. Now, in conclusion, and that's my hint for you. It's not a hint if you make it so obvious. What's my point? Why am I sitting in air-conditioned spaces in July thinking so deeply about sin and how it figures in our message? Why does it matter? What is the point here? 
Well, friends, if I'm honest, a message based on sin and guilt was never the full story of the gospel. It never was, and it won't be the centerpiece of any helpful message with, with which we try to re-engage our city and our culture. It just can't hold the center any longer. Now, I'm aware that this is getting to the core of what we were taught was truth. Sin might be the last great untouchable Christian doctrine. <laughs> there are probably more than a few of you with alarm bells going off in your head as I'm speaking. I am, in case you wondered, actually asking us to rethink what we were taught. It's on brand for us here. If that's too much work, then we can recommend a place down the street for you. It's what we spend our time doing. Friend, it was never good news to go around the world and tell people why they should feel real bad about themselves and their histories, threatening them with eternal residency in some underworld we all know was a literary metaphor. That was never good news. And worst of all, it was not good news if, if we told it in such a way that allowed us to control who went where in the end. <laughs> Got brimberries on that one. If I could be a little birdie, friends, on the shoulders of Peter, as he begins his public-facing ministry, I would whisper, stick to the work of fixing broken things, touch suffering bodies, welcome despised and rejected people into your circle of mutual empowerment. Let this business of guilt and transgression and sin and trying to decide who's to blame, let it go, Peter. Set that aside, that was never the gospel of Jesus. And if I was a little birdie, I might whisper that same thing to us, if I could, as we move back into a city that God has always loved. That's my most traumatic voice. <laughs> Let's have a, how about a Ray LaMontagne song? You got one of those in your repertoire? Oh boy. Thank you for listening to the Austin New Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on our Facebook and Instagram pages and head over to austinnewchurch.com where you can get added to our mailing list. Our services are also live streamed on Facebook and YouTube on Sundays at 1030 a.m. if you'd like to receive the full experience. We're so grateful for who you are and who you are becoming. Grace and peace be with you wherever you are.